Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. County cricket, international cricket, test cricket, franchise cricket, red ball, white ball, hundred ball cricket. At The Cricketer, we care about the cricket you love. And that's why we've launched a brand new app built for fans of the English game. Download The Cricketer app and sign up to our Access All Areas Pass to receive agenda-setting journalism and illuminating storytelling straight to your phone. The latest news from the England camps, a dedicated daily service for fans of the 18 first-class counties and committed coverage of women's cricket. Download the app today and enjoy one month for free unlimited access. The Cricketer. We care about the cricket you love. Well, well, well. <laughs> Sometimes you have to start an episode in a completely different way. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 62 of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Marshall St. Patrick Hewitt, one half of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. If you're watching on the visuals, you can already see who we've got in the studio. If you're listening on the audios, you're about to find out. But as ever, the person who's with me is my partner in crime, Santoki. What, what are you doing and how are, how are you? I'm massively excited, Mash. We've got a big episode coming up. If you are watching on YouTube and you don't recognise the guest at the bottom of your screen, this might not be the podcast for you. But, Michelle, introduce to the people. Who have we got today? So, the person we've got today, when I think back to growing up as a, as a kind of youngster, young man in cricket, obviously both of us, Santoki, people who listen to this, we're massive West Indian fans and We've both got tales to tell of the West Indies teams that we grew up with, largely speaking, the decline of the West Indies. But um, 
I always equated England with one particular person when West Indies would play England. And I'd always be like, yeah, if we get this guy out, we'll roll England over quite quickly. Um, so the person we've got on today is none other. I don't even know how you intro somebody like this because he's got so many uh, suits to his skill set. Former England cricket captain, broadcaster, presenter, journalist. What, what else can I really say? It's Michael Atherton. Michael, how are you doing? I'm well, and uh, very nice to see you both. Nice to be on the, the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. I'm an avid listener. <laughs> right, we're going to... Right, Santoki screen, grab that. Uh, let me just... Let me just... Let me skip that one. <laughs> make sure make sure that we get that out to people. But, um, Michael, it's really, really good to have you on. And um, and we, we mean this when we say it's an honour, actually, um, uh, to have you on. I think... Um, Certainly for cricket fans of a particular era, your name, in fact, every era, because of, because you're on TV, because you're everywhere, you are synonymous almost with cricket all around the world. So it's an absolute pleasure um, to have you on. And Santoki, I'm going to let you kick off proceedings on this one. Yeah, let's get into it. So Michelle mentioned, obviously, we were unfortunate to have grown up during the decline of the West Indies. Contrastingly, Michael, you grew up um, during a period when West Indies were dominating world cricket, late 70s, 80s, winning World Cups, home and away. And obviously, they had a great input on county cricket. Obviously, Sir Clive Lloyd was at your local county, Lancashire, for a good nearly 20 years. Kind of, as a youngster growing up, aspiring to play cricket, how much of an impact and influence did West Indian cricketers have on the development of your own game? I think anybody who's a child of the 80s, which, which I am really, that's when I was in my teenage years and just starting to, to get into the game. Anybody who grew up then um, admired the West Indies team. You, you know, the Ashes is obviously the big series for, for England. But in the 80s, Australia were, were a bit of a dull team, actually, comparatively. So it was always the West Indies tours that most of us look forward to, both home and away. I mean... You know, prior to 1989-90, they weren't televised live, so you'd get snippets uh, on the news of, of some fantastically terrifying cricket. Uh, and obviously, you know, the 80s tours to England uh, when the West Indies were an unbelievable team. So it was just a very charismatic team, actually. Clive Lloyd, you mentioned, I'm a Lancashire boy. Clive is an adopted Lancastrian. I remember well, actually, and it must have been mid-70s, my local club was a little club called Woodhouse's Cricket Club. And our overseas player, when he just retired from Lancashire, was Farouk Engineer, who was the other overseas player with Clive at Lancashire. And, and every year, he played for us for about three years, and we'd give him a little benefit match at the end of the season. And he'd bring the Lancashire team to play against Woodhouse's. So I vividly remember Clive and Michael Holding coming to my little cricket club in about 1976. Uh, which was a which was a real thrill. So Clive was kind of my favourite cricketer growing up. West Indies were a, just a very fantastic team to watch. Yeah, most definitely. And um, it's 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 interesting. Obviously, like obviously you've got that experience coming up through the eighties, and it, it might be a bit of a quick kind of uh, segue into this topic. But I am intrigued to kind of go here first. You had pleasure no let's say displeasure and then probably pleasure of playing with students and let me explain what i mean by that you would have played when we were still dominant and still been playing as we started to basically 
well, well, basically when when it started to turn and um, and people could actually get at us. And when we uh, we've had like um, Fazir Mohammed on, and we obviously we had Phil Simmons on, um, and kind of spoke to them about when did they notice that the decline was coming? What was the key turning point? But we've never actually asked. Uh, a player who played through the transition for the West Indies as to when they experienced, or sorry, when they thought they're not that good anymore. I mean, I'm just intrigued to know if you you ever felt that or if it just kind of came out of the blue for somebody playing them. Well, I can tell you the first time I played against the West Indies, which was 1991 at Headingley, and Viv was captain, and the attack was Malcolm... Patrick Patterson, Kirtley Ambrose, Courtney Walsh, Desi at the top of the order, Viv in the middle, Douge behind the stumps. That was a fantastic team. And I absolutely remember their warm-up, funnily enough. The first day of the test match at Headingley, I was only a young kid. I was kind of 22 or something. And I remember watching this team just do their lap round the ground and their warm-up. And they had such an aura about them. I think Dennis Waite was still a physio. I might be wrong. And he led them round. And they kind of did these stretches. And then they all got up and high-fived each other. And I just thought, oh, my God, who are these guys? <laughs> they, they had a, an unbelievable aura. Obviously, some, some great players there. Funnily enough, I, I also remember that test match. The, the toss in those days you had, I mean, it's such a paraphernalia now out of the toss, millions of camera crews and radio and all that kind of thing. Back then it was just the two captains. And I remember Gucci walking out with Viv to toss up at Headingley and Viv won the toss and great, you know, he said, what, what, what we going to do? And, and Viv said, I'll let you know. So the two captains kind of troop back in because you only have to let the captain know 10 minutes before the start of play, what they're doing. It would be different now with a camera crew. And I remember us all just sat in the dressing room waiting for Viv to knock on the door to let us know. And he eventually knocked on the door, the door opened, and he just stood there looking around and he said, you guys come back. And we thought, oh, no. So they had this, you know, tremendous aura about them. I don't think, I mean, I, you know, my last uh, series against West Indies was 2001 in England. Mm. We won yes. for the first time. But Courtney and Kirtley were still playing. That was the game where they walked off arm in arm of course at the oval so there was still very much a sense that scoring runs against them was hard work the difference was the quality of the backup bowlers which wasn't quite there then and the batting was vulnerable and I don't know when that realization came but it, it kind of was a gradual realization that you know we were we were more than competitive uh, by 2001 even on my, I toured twice as captain to the Caribbean, even the second time in 98, with a, bit of, with a bit of good luck, better luck with the toss and pitches. We could have maybe sneaked a, a win as well, even though the scoreline 3-1 suggests, uh, you know, we were well beaten. Actually, it was a funny series and, and lots of things didn't quite go our way. So I think it was just a gradual realisation, really, through the decade that, that they weren't quite as strong as they were. But my word, I tell you, that first game at Headingley lives long in my memory. That side had an unbelievable aura about it. Mm. And we got, we've got hundreds of questions from 
listeners and followers um they want to ask you but i'm going to get this one in first because it comes from my father-in-law who's a proud jamaican so i need to get this question in he wanted to know what was it like facing patrick patterson i I believe you faced him in the 91 tour i don't think you faced him in the caribbean but what was it like against him well of course he's a, a lancashire player as well um funnily enough it was just after i'd taken my o levels or maybe it was A-levels, I can't remember which, but I remember Peter Lever, who was the Lancashire coach at the time, and I was just a young kid. I wasn't a professional player or anything. But the first team were away, and the second team were away, and little did I know that Patrick Patterson was injured and needed somebody to bowl at to prove his fitness for the next game. So I got a call when I was about 16 years of age from the coach to say, do you want to come down for a net? He didn't tell me who I was about to face. <laughs> and I got there, and Patrick had marked out his run and was uh, about to undergo a fitness test. So that's the first time uh, I played or batted against Patrick. I had the great honour of playing with him because he was our overseas player when I started at Lancashire. Him and Waz, Wazzy Makram, were our two overseas players, and you could only play one. You could have two on your staff, but you could only play one. So we used to alternate them, and the one that wasn't playing would go and play in the second team. So some poor kid (laughs) in the second team would turn up and they'd have to face... Either Wazi Makram or Patrick Patterson. Pato was tremendously quick. I mean, he was such a strong, physically strong bowler. Um, and, you know, when he was really running in, you, you, you'd see the kind of spikes of his boots. He had that big high uh, front foot that would, that would jump up. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, I was lucky, really, because the lads who played in the 80s, that 86 tour, was it, or 84 tour, I can't remember which, they said there was a, a pitch at Sabina which was a little bit ridged, and he was, of course, I think it, was, it might have been his first test match uh, on his home ground, and they said he was unbelievably quick, um, and Jeffrey Dujon, who I've commentated with from time to time, you know, I've asked him who, who hit the gloves hardest of all those great fast bowlers that they had, and he said Patrick was as quick as any of them. So, yeah. It's, it's quite interesting because already just in the opening kind of 10 minutes, we've, we've mentioned Clive Lloyd, Farouk Engineer, Patrick Patterson, Courtney, Kirtley, Viv. Now, all of these players played extensively in England. And I'm intrigued uh, what your view is going to be on this uh, kind of next question, uh, Mike, because as the years have gone by, and as West Indies have kind of declined in the, particularly in red ball cricket, um, we've seen less or fewer and fewer West Indians play in uh, English county cricket. But then at the same time, the the current narrative is that English county cricket isn't good anyway. <laughs> but, but for West Indians, a lot of us, and I'm sure you've spoken to many West Indians, probably during the second test, you will have heard enough in Antigua and in Barbados and on previous tours that there's not enough West Indians playing in county cricket. That used to be the finishing school. But then we hear English cricket aficionados say county cricket doesn't even help England England uh, cricketers. So what's your views? Uh, I'm intrigued as to your, your views on that as to, I guess, would it benefit um West Indies to have more West Indians playing counter cricket. I mean, last season, Alzari Joseph got a stint at Worcestershire. Craig was at Gloucestershire. Kimar was at Surrey. And that was the most we've... In fact, Carl Mayers went to Warwickshire in the white ball. So that was the most we've had in a long, old time. Um, 
But I guess, do you catch my drift here? What's your views then on the setup versus West Indian experience and so on and so forth? Well, I mean, there, there are some issues with county cricket, principally when it's played. It's played very early and very late in the season. But I think that may change over the, over the next few years and hopefully we'll get an amount, a decent amount of first-class cricket played at a, you know, a reasonable time in the summer. And I still think it's a valuable experience for anybody, actually. And I think particularly for players, young players from the Caribbean, just because of the volume of cricket that you would get, first-class cricket, if you come and play in England. Often, players from abroad don't quite get that volume. Um, and, and therefore, you know, how many domestic first-class games? I know because of COVID, there's only been a couple in the last couple of years here. But generally, you know, there are fewer number of get first class games in, in West Indies domestic cricket than there would be in English county cricket. So I think that volume is very useful for batsmen, especially. And of course, just the, the different conditions. I know you play with the Dukes here, but it's a slightly different Dukes. And the pitches, which, which certainly do more off the scene sideways movement. So that ability to try and learn about a different style of cricket to try and develop your game and make it a more rounded game. I still think it's a really valuable thing for any young player, actually, uh, but obviously for, for young West Indies players as well. I mean, we've got Jacob Bethel, young Jacob Bethel in the system. He's one of uh, your... No, 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 no. This is a <laughs> but he's, uh, do, you, do, you, do you suspect that he'll end up playing for England um, in the near future? Oh, I don't know about near future. He's um, he's a talented lad. Uh, used to see him actually. He he would you'd see him occasionally on Accra Beach as a very you know young kid, knee high, and he clearly is a very talented talented lad. So kept an eye on him in the under nineteen World Cup where he did pretty well for England. He's obviously on Warwickshire's books, and they they think highly of him. Do you do you know what Santoki actually before you jump into to, to ninety four you know because. Because Athens has brought up Jacob Bethel, should we should we go should we go there with one of those? Should we go with the, that you know that final mailbag question? Should we ask, should we go there? Which one was it, Mash? <laughs> I don't know if we're ready to go there. You know. Oh, okay. I've just seen I'm it. Yeah, right I want to see what they put Athens on the spot early in the, <laughs> in the recording. So, uh, Mr. Atherton, um, <laughs> your your son. <laughs> <laughs> can represent West Indies or England. Help us out, please. <laughs> well, um, it would be for him to answer, but I think he would. He he sees himself very much as a as an English produced player. Both my kids have carry on passports, um, so they do have that link through my wife, who is Guyanese. Um, but Josh is a. Uh, English produced player um, having a crack at Middlesex and enjoying himself. Well, for all those who said, "Come on, please try and uh, <laughs> Athens arm," he, I tried. He knows we need an opener. He's easy. <laughs> he knows we're, 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 our cupboard is bare. But I, I try my best, everyone, to, to, to try and engineer a situation. But um, Santoki, um, I know you want this going to ninety four. Yeah, well, firstly, I'm not giving up on Ava's son playing for the West Indies. I'm going to make a call to the Guyana Harpy Eagles, as they've known, <laughs> see, see if they can get him out for the regional season. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's let's talk about 1994. So your first tour as captain to the West Indies. 
Um, controversially, we'll say it was a proper tour. You went to Jamaica, Guyana, Trinidad. We won't talk about the 46 and then Barbados and the wreck. Firstly, I guess, what was it like touring West Indies off the field at that time? Well, it, it was always the principal tour of the winter. In those days, you really just, it was a, a simpler time, I suppose. You, you had one winter tour and the West Indies was always a, a five test match tour with a few ODIs as well. I think we played five ODIs on that tour, West Indies 1-3-2. Um, so it was a long tour. You went to all the islands, you played games in between the tours. You'd always play a, I think we played a game in Grenada against the President's Eleven. We played against Barbados. We played against Jamaica in Jamaica. So, you know, it would be a lengthy tour. You'd go to all the islands. I mean, I've written about this quite frequently in the, in the last few years you know it's a long time now since England have been to Guyana they last played a test match there in 1998 which is when I was captain and they haven't played a test match in Jamaica or Trinidad since 2009 um, so you know it's very different now it, so, so then it was just a, a full-on tour um, and a great experience you know the standard of cricket was high um, Sabina Park, you know, terrific atmosphere. I, I remember turning up there for the first test match. I'd never seen a pitch like it, actually. They used to, the groundsman there, I think he was called Charlie Joseph, I might be wrong. He used to kind of spin roll the pitch. He, he'd, he'd dampen it and then he'd get his roller and almost like spin roll it. So it had a sheen and a shine and you could almost see your reflection in it. And when you went out to bat, it was so hard. You know, it was quite... Difficult if you were batting in spikes. You, right at the start of the game, you felt as if you were batting on an ice rink because it was so hard, your spikes wouldn't go in. And it was really glassy and shiny and fast. Um, and Courtney Walsh bowled tremendously quickly in that game. And quite, a, quite an edgy atmosphere at Sabina Park, you know, a good atmosphere. Um, so, yeah, fantastic experience. Um, I mean, lots happened on that tour. There was uh, the Sabina Park, Courtney Walsh. I think he got warned for for frequent short pitch bowling at Devon Malcolm at our, at our tail. He bowled a very fast spell at me. Um, we had the 46 all out in Trinidad. Um, a game really we should have won. We dominated that game for long periods and we dropped a few catches, which meant we were chasing like 170 instead of about the 50 we should have been chasing. And it meant that West Indies only had an hour to bowl on that on that fourth day, and Kirtley came steaming in. And then Brian's three seven five, of course, at, at the wreck, which was a very very flat pitch, um, but a great place to play. You know, right in the heart of the town, a fantastic atmosphere, um, which is very different now to the to the new ground, which is a little bit out of town and, and more difficult for for the local fans to get to. Do you kind of look back at those kind of five test tours? Obviously, cricket's changed. The global calendar's changed. There's so much white ball, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not a bad thing, but I'm just saying times have changed. But when you go, so obviously you're in the Caribbean right now, so we've got a tour of Antigua, Barbados, Grenada. Um, do What's the sense you get? Because out there now in Barbados, having maybe spoken to... West Indians, uh, Barmy Army, English travelling fans, the media in general. Is there a sense of 
we'd like to go to the other islands or do you or do you sense that it just is very much now the accepted well this is what an england tour of the caribbean is now i hope i hope it changes and i hope england get the opportunity to go to some of the you know places that have rich cricketing heritage if if you think traditionally historically about west indies cricket the four great um places that have produced cricketers are barbados trinidad jamaica and guyana so three of those that england haven't been to for for a long time so i hope they get the chance to go there again i mean it you know one understands why these things happen you know the economics of the world game are such at the moment that there's great inequalities you know west indies um their income compared to say england's and india is tiny the england and india tours are the only tours where west indies make money so you know the islands with strong a tourist angle bid for the test matches and that's why we're in we're in barbados antigua and grenada but i i feel it's just kind of lost a little bit of soul partly because of the islands that we're not going to or I shouldn't call guyana an island but the territories we're not going to and the lack of of local fans i mean even when i played there was always a strong english contingent at places like you know the kensington oval but there was a lot of local support as well um throughout all the test matches i played that you know local support was fantastic and playing and watching cricket in the caribbean had a what i would say was a unique flavor that you would get nowhere else in the world every country's got its own distinctive characteristics i think but playing and watching cricket in the caribbean was was unique and it's just lost a bit of that at the moment as far as when england go just because it's a broadly an english crowd um so you know that's a matter of of a bit of regret you know just i, I mean i he- hesitate to sound like a you know an old cricketer talking about yesteryear because you're right things do change and you have to be careful not to sound like a dreary you know ancient cricketer talking about back in my day but i still think you know to have that character to playing and watching cricket here is really important so it'd be lovely to get a bit of that back consent hmm. sorry go on Santa. i was going to say one one such place with the legacy obviously we talked about the wreck but also border cricket ground in georgetown you scored a century there in the second test on 94 just kind of what was your experience playing there and how would you describe the character of that stadium border was very similar to the arg actually you know quite a small small ground the facility is not necessarily fantastic for players or supporters but you know right in the heart of the community i, th- I can think of border now it's right in the middle of georgetown all of life around it um you know you just kind of you'd, you'd be in there amongst it really i can remember you know s- supporters sitting in the trees outside the ground to get a view of, of the cricket you know you had a sense that it, it was a really important event um, I mean, it was a very flat pitch, I have to say, and that was probably why I got 100 there. It was a very slow, low pitch, not dissimilar to the two we've just seen in this series. So that, I mean, it wasn't a great surface uh, for cricket then, but it was a, a very atmospheric ground um, in the same way that the ARG uh, is and what or was, um, you know, in a sense of being at the heart of the community 
um, and a wonderful place to play. I thoroughly enjoyed the two test matches that I did play there. And you mentioned your, your wife has obviously got a Guyanese background, so I'm assuming you would have been to Guyana outside of cricket and reasons. How would you kind of describe the country? What's your experiences of going to Guyana? I've been there frequently. Um, it's a very interesting country, as you know. It's, I mean, it's a vast, it's got a vast hinterland. There's only, a, what's the population? Only about 650,000 people, isn't it? This vast hinterland of almost uncharted wilderness. So I've been on that 94 tour, we went to the Caicho Falls. We went to the Duke Falls, I think it's called, which is up on the Brazilian border. Um, I've been you know, quite, quite a lot of the, the areas behind Georgetown, down the, down the rivers, down the Essequibo. I've spent, you know, time down there. So it's a very different country from most of the others in the Caribbean. Um, and it's produced its, its fair share of, of great cricketers, of course. It has that great cricketing heritage uh, from Babis and Georgetown, produced a lot of great players. So um, it would be nice to see England go back there again at some point. It's um, it's interesting because <clears throat> you briefly touched on it when you um, when you're talking about border, but I think this is kind of um, an aspect of West Indies cricket that people often overlook the the facilities or lack thereof. Um, and uh, recently on uh, Sports Mats, which is uh, one of the main kind of uh, carriers in the Caribbean, uh, Dwayne Bravo did like a tell all in um, tell all interview for an hour or so and. He was talking about how the facilities in Trinidad, just use Trinidad as an example, are the same as they were when he was a young boy playing in Trinidad all the way back in like the late 1990s, etc. And I think sometimes Athers people don't realise just how limited <laughs> facilities are um, in the Caribbean. So I just wonder if you can just talk on that a little bit in terms of, and actually from a perspective of being a player, and kind of growing up in the, the English system, and then you go out to the Caribbean and you're like, oh, there's not much. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you ex well, certainly then we accepted that as that's, that's what it is. That's how it is. There's a famous photo. He was actually doing the rounds on Twitter yesterday of Jeffrey Boycott batting in a field surrounded by goats and cows and just a concrete strip. And, and what it was, you, you just found, you know, places to have a practice. You know, you'd, you'd use the tennis court sometime in Georgetown and, and, you know, practice on the tennis courts. At the rec, you'd have to walk over, uh, uh, over, the, over the road to, to find some nets behind the kind of ground there. And that's how it was. And, and, and there was no sense of, of complaining about that. So, so it's a matter of regret to me that, you know, they've moved away from the rec and the border you know, partly the 2007 ICC World Cup stipulations about getting bigger grounds with better facilities. But again, what's been lost is a little bit of soul. Um, but I, I know that Johnny Gray, for example, the, the CEO here, they are um, really uh, utilizing the ground, the old Stanford ground in Antigua, mm -hmm. the Coolidge ground that they now own, they bought it and they own. They're planning to broadcast all their cricket remotely from there. And they're planning to really develop the facilities there. He told me that I think they're going to use have 18 grass nets. Um, you know, I think they're building an indoor school as well. Mm -hmm. um, so they're going to use that almost as their academy hub to develop 
young cricketers. I know that University of West Indies here in Barbados, that, that was significant for the development of a lot of players as well in the last few years. But, uh, you know, they're going to try and reconstitute that at, at Coolidge. So that sounds as though it's going to be a first-class facility. Uh, I, had a, I was having a, a chat with Chris Bab Brabazon, who, who's in charge of like the coaching development and the talent pathways. And it sounds as though that will be an excellent facility for the next generation. Most definitely. I think, and then uh, uh, I'm glad you've mentioned Chris Brabazon because I think, uh, again, a there's a lot of knowledgeable people behind the scenes in Cricket West Indies. And sometimes it can appear like it's all doom and gloom, but there are people with plans with how to kind of regenerate um, things. But of course, in in any sport, you're judged on the metric on what's going on in the field. And nobody necessarily wants to hear about long-term plans. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, West Indies always produced talent. And I think it always will. Whilst cricket is still, you know, regarded as important to the region, it will always produce talented cricketers. You know, what do you need really as a young player? You need, you need space and sunshine. And there's, you know, an abundance of that in the Caribbean. So although the population is small comparatively to, to India and England, you know, there's still advantages here that will see the production of, of talent. And then obviously, if you get a facility like Coolidge that will help um, as, a, as a finishing place for that talent, then, you know, the, the hope is that there'll always be, be good cricketers. I, I mean, when you think about it, that great period of West Indian dominance from the mid-70s to the, to the mid-90s. Um, I mean, the remarkable thing really is that you know, people talk about the decline. The remarkable thing is that there was that period of dominance. When you think of yeah. what's the population across the Caribbean, is it 5 million or, or thereabouts? Mm -hmm. You know, it's remarkable that this great team dominated world cricket for, for 20 years. And that is a, it's a, one of the great stories of any sport, really. And it would be unreasonable, probably, to expect that to happen again. Um, but I still think West Indies can produce lots of talented players and be competitive. Most definitely. And um, uh, before uh, Santoki comes back in, I've got a quick question, actually, because uh, you kind of jogged my memory as you were saying something earlier on. Um, looking at your own career, you obviously captained England for five years. Was it five years? Yeah. Um, yeah it will take five years. And actually, I just want to just pick your brain ever so slightly on we'll call it the art of captaincy because do you feel what do you feel the role of the modern cricket captain is has it changed do you think captaincy is still the same as it was back when you were captain in England so for example let's use so Joel Roots copped uh, a bit of flack and stick for not declaring earlier uh, in the, the fifth day um, against West Indies. I'll just use that as a kind of brief example. But do you think in any shape or form captaincy has changed or do you think that role will always kind of remain the same and the fundamentals of cricket um, ensures that? Or do you think captaincy might be a bit overrated? I think the fundamentals haven't changed. And your job, put simply as a captain, is to try and harness the 11 people in your team and get them pulling in the same direction and playing for a cause or whatever it is, whilst at the same time allowing space and freedoms for individuals to express themselves. Because cricket is a, 
a unique game, really. You've got that balance between the individual and the team. And that cr can create some tension and some conflict. And a captain's job is really to harness those two things, to get everybody pulling together, but allow individuals room to, to express themselves and, and be themselves and, and be the best version of themselves they can be. So I think, put simply, that's, that's the captain's job. And, and the stuff on the field doesn't really change. You know, you're, you're trying to size up conditions quickly. You're trying to stay ahead of the game. Um, you're trying to do everything in your power to try and win a game. And if you can't, then obviously to avoid defeat. That much hasn't changed. I think what's changed a little bit is just the dynamic then slightly off the field. So, for example, the first tour that I captained, which was here in the Caribbean, we'd have a manager, a coach, a physio, and a scorer. And that was it. That was your backroom staff, if you like. So you were very much in charge. You ran the show as captain. Whereas now, obviously, you know, the, right, the role of the coach is more significant than it was. England have probably got about 18 backroom staff here. I don't know exactly how many, but they've, they've had as many of, as 18 in the past, in the recent past. So that dynamic has, has shifted, I think. Probably the captain has a bit more help off the field than he did have, um, and a few more people, you know, either to get in the way, which can not necessarily be helpful, or to to help out on the training days and practice days. So it's changed a little bit, but the fundamentals of trying to get the best out of your players and your team and finding ways to win, I think, remain the same, to be honest. Mm. So if we fast forward to the current series, obviously, as of recording, we're, we're two tests into it. The good news is West Indies haven't lost yet, um, and hopefully it stays that way. But there's been two main talking points off the field. Um, it's kind of blighted kind of discussions about, about this series. The first one is obviously the nature of the pitches. And the second is the lack of local fans so far at the games in Antigua and Barbados. So, Mike, you've been there covering the games. What have you made of it all so far? Well, the pitches have, have not been good. They've been disappointing um, just because they've been so slow, you know, and probably no, no other sport is as impacted by the conditions as cricket. Um, of course, the great players can transcend the conditions, but, you know, these are two fairly average teams, I would say. Certainly looking at the World Test Championship, that would suggest so, and, and probably looking at the action on the field. You know, the players have have done their best, obviously, but you wouldn't say it's the greatest England team we've ever seen, nor the greatest West Indies team. But um, the pitches have not really allowed the players to, to flourish. You know, nobody, no English player would expect to come to the Caribbean and see the ball darting off the scene. That would be unreasonable. But what you, you hope for is a bit of pace and bounce or a bit more pace and bounce than we've seen. And with a bit more pace and bounce, that would allow both batsmen and bowlers to flourish. Batsmen would find it easier to play their shots. The quicker bowlers on either side would find a bit more in it for them. And I think that would elevate the standard of the cricket. Um, so that's been disappointing so far. I mean, Antigua was very slow. Barbados, by the standards of Kensington Oval, that was a really slow pitch. Um, and again, the local crowds, you know, we, we touched on it before, really. And it, it's a shame. I think, you know, the cricket loses something. You, you lose that essential Caribbean nature of, of the cricket and the crowd here, which was always fantastic. So those two aspects have been a little bit disappointing. 
Um, I have to say, I thought Craig Brathwaite was magnificent in this test match. You know, once England got to 500, West Indies can't really win the game. Uh, and therefore, you know, he just had designs on on not losing. And he, he was the difference. He, you know, if he'd have got out to Jack Leach at any stage, England would have won that game, most probably. So that le the level of concentration, the physicality of it, I think he was only off the field for 20 overs, 19.1 overs in the whole test match. Um, so that was a really top-class effort from Craig. Um, but yeah, the, the, the pitches have made it very difficult. I'm, fingers crossed for something a bit more in Grenada that will allow the players to express themselves a bit better. Just touching slightly on uh, that Craig innings, because... Um... When I was um, uh, prepping for this, of course, I, I remembered your 185 um, versus South Africa. And the, the reason I referenced that is I'm trying to remember how many balls that took you. I swear, how many? It was uh, a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. But the reason I referenced that is because obviously everybody kind of watched Craig's innings and they go, oh, the um, uh, kind of the mental fortitude, etc." But you've experienced something like that where you've just dug in. That 185 is probably, I don't know if that is, I don't know if you'd call that your best innings. I certainly think it was the best I've seen from you in the, given the context and the bowling attack. But um, what, as an, and you're an opening batsman as well, as an opening batsman who plays an innings like that, what type of mental zone are you in? Like, so when you did that 185, were you even aware of anybody outside of the sphere of the ball and the bat? Do you even notice anything? What time are you in a particular zone? Yeah, I think you do get in that zone. And the only times that you really are aware of the stuff outside is when you get to like a 50 or a hundred and suddenly, you know, you, you lift your bat, the crowd's going and you, you kind of take it all in. But other than that, you're right. You just, you just get into a bit of a, into a bit of a zone. I mean, Craig, for example, he'd had 150 overs in the field as well. And I remember what's that, what that's like, because I used to come off a, as a day, a day of test cricket when I was captain, and you'd usually have a bit of a headache at the end of it because there are so many decisions that you have to make in the day. You know, it's hot here in the Caribbean, and, and you know, that's exhausting. And he, so he'd had 150 overs as captain. Then he comes out and bats for more than 150 overs, um, only 20 overs off, and then he's got to come out and captain again, and then set his stall out to bat for a draw in, on that final day. So a really fantastic effort from him. Um, and you can see there's, there's players, I was one a bit, Alistair Cook certainly more recently for England, Craig Brathwaite for West Indies. You know, players, you can see the ones who can concentrate for long periods because they tend to be quite calm and relaxed types. They're not burning up too much energy in between deliveries. You know, you look at Craig and you think his heart rate's probably down at about 45 or something. He doesn't look like a man who is stressed out at the crease. So, you know, he's not taking, he's conserving his energy. You only really, when you think about it, have to concentrate for about maybe 10 seconds each ball because the bowler runs in, you switch on, concentrate like mad for those 10 seconds. But then the key to batting long periods is the ability to switch off after that because mm -hmm. nobody can really concentrate fully all the time for six hours. So that ability to switch on and switch off is vital if you, if you want to play long innings. And you can see with Craig's body language that 
that's uh, it's either something he's learned or something that is inbuilt in him. You know, he's somebody who can bat for long periods. Most, most definitely, and I think uh, Santolki. Um, we we were kind of rejoicing it just because since since Shiver's gone, <laughs> I mean, we we haven't really had innings. I mean, Incrimer Bonner has shown us bits and pieces, but since Shiver's gone, we haven't really had that, those. That used to be a regular kind of innings <laughs> that we would see from someone in the West Indies team. So it was uh, it was pleasing to see someone dig in like that. But um, Santolki, like you said, we had lots and lots of questions. Uh, sent into us. Do you want to bring some of them in? Yeah, actually, before we get into that, just one quick question for Mike. Um, sort of, Web West Indies were always trying to make comparisons to the glory days, and there's always this question about who's going to continue the long lineage of fast bowling excellence in the region. At the moment, that's come down to Jaden Seals. Um, obviously, the pitches haven't been conducive to kind of highlight his talents, but what have you made of him so far in the first two tests? I, I've i liked the look of him. As you say, the pitches have just not helped anybody. And if you're a young, fast bowler here, you know, you, ha- you, you have to feel that they've not, not been given any real opportunity to, to show what they've got. But he can move the ball. He obviously can get that new Duke's ball swinging. He looks quite an intelligent bowler to me. I'll just give you one example. I can't remember which morning it was in Antigua when Chris Wokes was at the crease. And... Chris is perfectly reasonable number eight batsman, but probably, you know, if, you, if you've if you got a ploy at him, you're probably going to bowl short. West Indies hadn't bowled one short ball at him for about 40 minutes. And then the moment Jaden Seals came on, his first ball at Chris Wokes was a short ball and it flicked the glove, if you remember. I can't remember which morning it was. So he strikes me as quite an intelligent bowler. He's good in the field. I've watched him in the field. He's taken some good catches and he's he's kind of engaged and alert in the field. So he looks a switched-on cricketer. Um, so, yeah, definitely he's going to be around for, for a while and, and hopefully will carry things forward. Most definitely. And um, so looking into the, the, the mailbag, um, Athers, uh, picking out some of, the, some of the questions that were thrown at us. Um, oh, so uh, one of them came from Shane Thomas. Uh, we were meant to talk about this earlier, but we didn't. So you faced both Kirtley and Courtney, um, and everybody always associates Kirtley causing you a lot of problems, but I actually think Courtney took more wickets um, facing you. Um, they both took a lot. They both got me out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, people, I got out, you know, there's some bowlers who got me out a lot. Glenn McGrath got me out more than anybody, and I, I always felt I never really got my share of runs against Glenn McGrath, but I kind of felt I had some good battles against Kirtley and Courtney, you know, I got, I got some hundreds. I got, I got a few runs. I felt, I felt I kind of gave, gave my best against them. Both were fantastic bowlers. And, you know, when people say they got you out a lot, well, you know, we seem to play West Indies every two minutes back then, (laughs) five test match series. So if you're an opening batsman, you're going to get out to them. And Mm -hmm. as I said, towards the back end, when I played against West Indies, the backup bowlers weren't of the same quality. So if you're going to get out, you're probably going to get out to those two rather than, you know, Merv Dillon or Rayon King or, or whoever it was. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they both got me out a lot. But both fantastic bowlers, but quite different because of the angle, I think. Well, Courtney was quite wide of the crease, you know, angling in, getting it to hold up, quite awkward. And Kirtley, more straight lines, 
Mm. Very, very accurate. He Kirtley used to, he was funny because I always used to take the first ball and he'd bowl the first over. And before he bowled the first ball of a test match, he'd, he'd always, he'd kind of, you know, what mark out his run, blah, blah, blah. But then he'd walk down towards the pit, towards me, and he'd get to about, you know, eight foot from the popping crease where he wanted to pitch the ball. And he'd kind of stare at the pitch and rub his hands <laughs> as if to say, you know, that's where I'm going to be for the next two hours. And he usually was. He was a fantastic bowler. Um, and two guys who I get on well with, I mean, didn't mix with them much when we played, but always had great respect for them. They never said a word on the field, or hardly ever. I mean, I can, I can count on the fingers of one hand any words that were said. They were just top-class bowlers, great competitors, but, you know, who didn't need to, to say anything, really. They let their bowling do the talking. Mm. And our next question from Damien McBride. We sort of touched on it earlier, but what are your memories of Brian Lara's 375 at St. John's? And also, he wanted to know, when you were putting together the 300-plus run stand with Robin Smith, did it ever cross your mind that you might break a record as well? Uh, there need to be a timeless test for me to, <laughs> to break Brian's record, I'm afraid. But I did enjoy... It was a very flat pitch. That I mean... Bizarrely, we're talking about the pitches in this series, but the, the wreck was always a, a placid pitch. And it's funny, isn't it, how former fast bowlers who are groundsmen seem to want to produce graveyard surfaces. That was Andy Roberts then, and it's Tony Merrick now at the Viv Richards Stadium. Um, Brian's 375. Well, I knew Brian well. I played against him at under-19 level. We both played in the inaugural under-19 World Cup, which was in Australia in 1988. And Brian played in that. So I knew, you know, he was a, a fantastic player. Um, and I, to be honest, he never looked like getting out that day. I, I mean, I, I, it was, I didn't think of the record straight away, but there was a point where genuine, genuinely we started to think about that record because the pitch was unbelievably flat. He just didn't look like getting out. He was a maestro, really. I think of all the players of my era, he's the one I enjoyed watching most of all because of just the flow and the style and the elegance. You know, he's a brilliant player, a spin, that high back lift, you know, lovely flow. Um, so he was, a, he was a great player. I reckon the only mistake he made from memory, it's a long time ago, of course, but I remember on 291, I'd just taken the slip out finally and he nicked one through slip, Andy Caddick, I think. And now whether he did it deliberately, I've no idea. Maybe he was taking the mickey, I don't know. But it was a great moment when he did break the record. Um, so I remember he, he needed one, didn't he, to break Gary's record. And we kept him waiting. I changed the field numerous times just to try and build up the tension a bit. And then he pulled Chris Lewis uh, to the fence and there was just mayhem everybody ran on Gary came on um, so it was about 15 minutes before the next ball was bowled do you know what Santoki actually as a touching on the whole, the kind of like discourse about lack of local fans and that's actually the best example to show the lack of local fans if we had someone doing that today 
who would be on the pitch then? There'd be, there'd be no one there. We'd have to we'd have to rely on the England fans to run on to mob to mob our own players to tell well, them. That you know, I, was, I was watching in the last test in a you know fairly dull moment. I was watching a bit of YouTube footage of the famous Michael holding to Jeffrey Boycott over in '81 at Kensington, and you can still see it on YouTube. And before that over starts, they the camera pans to the old Kensington stand, which is now the Greenwich and Haynes. And the, the, the local supporters were all kind of coming up under. There was the, the, the Kensington was kind of slightly raised up, and they were coming underneath to get into the ground. And it, it full of local fans and sitting on the roof as well. The great Patrick Eager photo that's taken from the far corner, the opposite corner, looking back past Boycott when he's got his middle pole knocked out to the Kensington stand, and they're all sat on on the roof. You know, the, the unbelievable images, really. Mm, most definitely. And I think um, lots of other questions were sent in. And actually, in the course of us discussing everything we've discussed, they've actually probably all been answered. But I will I will leave you one last question before we go to the, to how we actually end uh, our episodes. But um, at no point in the show, granted it's a Caribbean cricket podcast, but I do think it's important we still ask you. At no point in the show did we actually asks you about the uh, the narrative of Red Bull reset um, and all of that for England. And uh, let us not forget that in the midst of this tour, West Indies aren't actually bottom of the World Test Championship. It's England, <laughs> it's England who are actually bottom of the World Test Championship. So, um, I, I mean, you could go on and on and on and on about it, but do you just see the whole kind of Red Bull reset as buzzwords or how do you actually reflect on this narrative of of Red Bull Reset? Is this tour the Red Bull Reset, or does that not really happen until the summer in England? I think if there is such a thing, it, it's going to be a bit more fundamental than just, you know, the test matches that England are playing right now. Um, so there's lots going on in English cricket. Andrew Strauss is in the process of setting up a high-performance review. They need a new managing director, they need a new chairman. The CEO is not going to be around for forever. So there's there's a lot happening, and I think if 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 there is to be a red red ball reset, it will be around the kind of structure of cricket, and and it may be that we don't play as much first class cricket as we have been doing. Still play 17, 14 games. I think it is that may come down to ten or so. Who knows? But hopefully those games will start to be played at a decent time of the year. And the, the standard of first-class cricket in England has to rise. Um, the gap at the moment is, is slightly too big. So rather than think about the team as such here in the Caribbean, because, you know, there's a few new faces, but, you know, you wouldn't say it looks a, a team that's going to take England to the top of the tree right now. I think it's more going to be around about the structure and schedules of cricket in England. Um, and that, of course, then will take some time to filter through. Mm-hmm. And I guess, Mash, it's time for time for the big, big question. And it's always a big question, but there's added pressure for Michael because obviously he's in the Caribbean at the moment. So depending on what he answers, could lead to his passport getting blocked at certain <laughs> borders. Passport control is going to be tough. So, Mash, do you want to take it away with a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're under pressure here, Affers. Um, so <laughs> we, got, we got three questions that we end the show with here. And we're going to go with the hardest one first. Boy, I don't know how you're going to answer this one. He, 
I know, I know how this ends. <laughs> what, what, what is your favourite ground to have played in in the Caribbean throughout your playing career and why? I think the, the old wreck, the ARG in Antigua, had a unique atmosphere. Playing and watching cricket there back in the day was like nowhere else like a five-day party. Um, the only negative against it was the pitch, which was too flat and didn't produce great quality of cricket. So if you could give me the Sabina Park pitch in the ARG, I'll take that all day long. Yep, I'll, I'll take that. The first reference to Sabina from anybody who's ever... <laughs> So I'll, I'll take that one. <laughs> um, the second question, who is the hardest... Hmm, yeah, who is the hardest bowler or best bowler, actually, you faced in your career? Doesn't have to be West Indian. Could be any... Yeah, well, all, actually, Sam Tonkin, does it have to be West Indian? We'll do two parts. West Indian. Yeah, two, yeah West Indian and non-West Indian. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose Malcolm Marshall. Come oh. on. He was a fantastic bowler. And, of course, you're always slightly biased to the people you see and play with or play against when you are really young. So I think my third first-class game for Lancashire was against Hampshire at Southampton. And Malcolm Marshall was still really quick in 1987. So I have this memory of, you know, a 21-year-old playing against Malcolm. And actually, I got through his new ball spells twice and was so thrilled to do so. I hit a little off-spinner called Nigel Cowley straight up in the air twice, having <laughs> kind of survived Mako's frightening new ball spells. But what a bowler he was. A, the sight of him running in, those, you know, that fast run-up on a kind of curving run with his arms and legs going. Pace really fast, and an ability to, to also just manipulate the ball, manoeuvre the ball, if he slightly cut down his, his pace. He, he, he was such a versatile and skillful bowler. Um, I'm going to choose him, and of course, a great, great tragedy that he died so young. Yeah, most definitely rest in peace to uh, Malcolm Marshall. And uh, finally, the greatest, I guess you've got to say the greatest batsman you've seen but that could mean played in a match with, that could mean watch on, as a fan, watch on TV, etc. I'm intrigued to see what you're going to say here. Obviously, you can't answer yourself. You did, all, you did, you did okay. But <laughs> I did okay, but I wouldn't be putting myself in that category. Um, I'm going to actually choose another West Indian. I'm going to go for Viv. Um, mm. I have not seen a player with that kind of aura on a cricket field, the way that he carried himself was unbelievable. And, you know, everybody, it's a cliche, isn't it? Everybody talks about the fact that he kind of carried the hopes of a small nation on his shoulders when he, when he walked out to bat. But I think you could see that in the way that he carried himself. Um, nobody walked to the crease like Viv. In an era of helmets, you know, he'd walk out there in his maroon cap. Um, an incredible... Incredible batsman. He still looks, he still looks really well. I saw him 
the other week in Antigua. He was 70, of course, uh, during that test match. And he looks a fine example for Caribbean living, I can tell you. <laughs> Still looks like he could get out there and, and, and put the whites on now. So uh, I'm going to choose him. Fantastic player. Well, you, you, can't, you can't go wrong there. Wilson Tolkien. What a what a tour de force that has been. I'm gonna hand over to you to uh for the closing remarks. Yeah, well what what an hour of conversation, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate your time. I think the one lesson to take from this podcast, Mash, is that Test Cricket needs to come back to border in Georgetown. <laughs> <laughs> but um Michael, before we go, sort of what is it? We've got one test less than left in the series, England West Indies. What is your prediction? Um, well, I, I, fingers crossed for a pitch that offers offers something and allows the players to really express themselves. I think I think England look a slightly stronger side. They certainly have done in the first two Test matches, but of course they've won two good tosses. So if Craig calls right and gets on the front foot and gets out in front, you know we may see a different a different turn of events. But I still I feel England just have have the edge somehow. Um, hopefully the pitch will will be will have enough in it to produce a result. Yeah, uh, I'm inclined to actually agree with, with, with Mike there. The only thing I would say is neither side is yet to face a, a true examination of, of batting technique. Um, and it will be just intriguing. If Grenada actually gives us something to watch, it will just be intriguing to see which top six uh, crumbles under the pressure. I didn't say which one looks weaker, but I'll just be interested to see which one crumbles first. But um, Mike, as, as, as Santoki said, um, we'd always wanted to get you on uh, to the podcast in some shape or form. So as we kind of said at the top of the show, an absolute honour um, to have you on. Great conversation, great chat. Um Obviously, you're you're going on to Grenada um, after this, and uh, we don't wish England well, but uh, we wish we we wish you well. <laughs> Thank you. Great, great pleasure to come on and chat to you, lads. No worries, um, ladies and gentlemen. That has been episode sixty-two of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. Thank you, and good night. Mm-hmm.